You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. We're going to be uh, looking particularly this morning at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, but we are actually going to read a little bit of some sections earlier in James. So uh, if you want, I will tell you those passages um, and then I'll read them because one of the things that James is doing is James is sort of looping back to topics that he's already hit on. So he'll use a few words or phrases to make you think about what he said already and bring us, bring us back to that topic. So um, I'm going to, so f- for background for our James 5, 1 through 6, I'm going to look at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, as well as verses 26 through 27, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and then I will read James 5, 1 through 6, okay? And as I read, listen for the ways that James uh, is picking up these threads uh, and moving forward. So, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 and 26 through 27, give your attention to the reading of God's word. Let the lowly or poor brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now jumping to verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a man, a poor man, in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now jumping to James 5, verses 1 through 6, our passage for this morning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For the miseries that are coming upon you, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion 
will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. And I ask that as we come to a sobering portion of your word, that um, you would impress upon us, each person, what we need to hear. And that ultimately, every person in this room would long for the kingdom of Christ and for the age to come. And you'd free us from anything that would bind us to this life here and now as though it is all that there is. Help us this morning, Heavenly Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to take a guess at what the, at least according to some polls, uh, the most popular uh, TV show is, what might you guess? I was looking this up because I actually thought it would be something than what it turns out to be. Um, and I got way more information than I needed, but uh, as Google so abundantly provides. Um, but in the top 16 TV shows for the last 50 years, three of them have to do with money, particularly winning money. So, this may or may not surprise you, but The Price is Right, one of the top TV shows. The other game shows that made the top of the list may or may not surprise you, Wheel of Fortune. And the number one TV show is Jeopardy. All of which, the fun thing, you know, for some people it's the facts, for other people it's the dollars, and maybe it's the combination of both. But it's very interesting that some of our most highly valued entertainment has to do with money, right? And winning it uh, quickly. I can, in fact, remember uh, the buzz that was created when uh, Wheel of Fortune came to uh, my hometown area uh, when I was younger. And it's just kind of interesting, you know, partially because TV shows never really came to our area was part of it. But, of course, the idea that maybe you could get on the show and win money, you know, was pretty exciting. Well, um, you probably wouldn't want to read James chapter 5 uh, right before you go on to Wheel of Fortune, right? Uh, or Jeopardy. Um, because it is a very harsh passage. And I don't think that anybody... Uh, actually will come away from this feeling unscathed. 
What I would like to look at this morning are three things. I'd like to first identify who are the rich, who are these rich people, what are the reasons James is so harsh in condemning them, and then number three, why is he addressing this group of people? Especially because we'll see that this group of people don't, don't actually seem to be in the church. And one of the things that I would point out is that James in this passage has all sorts of echoes to the Old Testament prophets, to the teachings of Jesus, and it's going to be nearly impossible to hit on all of them. So if there's things that occur to you, um, please feel free to come and let me know um, because uh, I think James is doing... Um, quite a significant amount of summary of what the Bible teaches about uh, wealth here. So who are these uh, rich folks? Are these Christians? Are these people in the church? And I'll be brief on this. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, which we looked at last week, um, James is clearly challenging Folks in the business world who happen to be in the church, you know, who are like, you know, hey, this coming month or this coming year or whatever, we're going to move to this town, we're going to do such and such business, blah, 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 right? And he says, whoa, 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 back up. Last I checked, you have no control over how many years you're going to live, how many months you've got, and how much success you are going to guarantee, Right? You need to hand those things over to God. Very clearly, he's talking to people, it seems, that are within his Christian sphere. And he's warning them and telling them, here's what you ought to do. And he uses the phrase in chapter 4, he says, come now. And he uses that phrase once again, come now, you rich. And you would think that there's a parallel here. And I think that there is. But the parallel is not... I'm addressing the business people, now I'm addressing the super rich people in our church, and then I'm going to address, you know, he's not doing that. That's not the kind of parallel we have here. And there's a few reasons for thinking this. We know James can be harsh. He's pulled out the, you adulterers, you murderers, to people in the church, right? So he, he, he's able to kind of call things like he sees it. But he often will call then the church to some form of repentance, like do this instead. Or he'll, he'll say brothers right after he says something really harsh to them. But we have nothing like that here. We don't have anything that says not this, but this. And brothers, get your minds you know, away from that, right? There's nothing like this. He will immediately, starting in verse 7, turn back to this language of brothers, Okay, And there's a few other things that we'll see as we go that I think suggest that James is not talking to people within the church, Okay, and I think that will hopefully become clear as we go. Now, the second thing, what are the reasons that James condemns the rich? Why is he so harsh? And there are four things. The first thing is that he condemns them for hoarding, okay? Verse 3, you have laid up treasure, or uh, the NIV translated, you have hoarded up treasure. In fact, it's been sitting around so that it's rotting, 
right? Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, right? Just kind of keeping it all to yourself. In fact, one of the things that's really weird is that he says that your gold and your silver have rusted or corroded, which those are precious metals. Those don't actually rust, okay? But maybe for effect, right? They've held on to the gold so long that if gold could rust, yours has, And this language, actually, laying up treasure, exact same words from the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus says, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Exact same language as the Sermon on the Mount. So they've hoarded this stuff, but they haven't totally hoarded. They've used some of it. How have they used their wealth? This is reason number two for James' harsh condemnation. Verse 5, you have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. They have, these rich have gold, they have silver, they have land, they have clothes. Those are kind of like the main things that you would count wealth in their stay. And it has been entirely for themselves. Their wealth is completely self-oriented. And you might, at this point, be like, well, you know, everyone pampers themselves a little bit. It's not too bad. And this brings us to the other two reasons that James is harsh, and I think that this is where he really ratchets things up. He says that they have robbed people they have, dep- not only are they self-indulgent, but their self-indulgence builds upon depriving others. Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, you have kept them back. So they've hoarded when there's money that actually should be going elsewhere. They've enjoyed the wealth while others have probably gone without food. And reason number four, so not only have they withheld what was due, but in fact, they have also actively oppressed those who are in need and uh, powerless in front of them. So verse six, that they have condemned the righteous, we're told. That language of condemn the righteous is court language, that's They have used their powers and their influence in the kind of, whether it's figurative or literal, in sort of a court-like setting. They have manipulated the system in order to get the end that they wanted, which meant uh, subjection and oppression for somebody else. The righteous one, in fact. Now, there's some debate whether that's Jesus or just the person who's actually in the right, right? You have used everything that you have, all of your advantages, to in fact flip what is right and wrong to get an outcome that favors you and totally cuts the legs out from beneath the other person. Okay? And of course, it doesn't take much reading of history or a few Google searches to find plenty of stories where the wealthy manipulate the system, right? to their own ends. 
It also doesn't take much reading in the Bible to find this out either. James here sounds like Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel says, and here's the thing that's a little bit frightening, okay? He's going to make a very similar condemnation. And as you, I read, he's going to mention uh, a place that people kind of think is like one of the worst places, uh, one of the worst, most atrocious places uh, for evil. And this is how he describes them. This is the prophet Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord, and he's talking now to his own people, he's talking to Judah, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. Similar themes from James, right? Self-indulgence, excess of food, but did not come to the aid of the poor and the needy, right? You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And in fact, this fattening your hearts in the day of slaughter could be that they fatten their hearts and they're going to get killed, like they've kind of miscalculated. Or, and this seems to actually be the case, they have fattened their hearts while others were slaughtered. So when someone was in need, in, in need of help, they were off whining and dining, right? So, James is harsh because not only have they hoarded wealth and used it for themselves, but they've done it while there was not only need, but these folks have actually caused the need and then inflicted more need. That's what James is getting at here, okay? Self-centered use of wealth and an unjust gain of wealth and then an unjust use of wealth. And what stands out, and I think that this is one of the reasons why James is not talking to people in the church, these folks are completely not oriented towards the things of the kingdom of heaven. And God's desire for wealth, and even the sense of where ultimate reality is. And we'll come back to that here in a moment. But this is all throughout Jesus' teaching, actually. If you read the Gospels, Jesus talks about this so much. So much talk about wealth. And we'll talk about this here now as I come to our third point. Why is James addressing rich people outside the church? Now, he is doing this for a number of reasons, one of which there is encouragement coming, but that's actually for next week. There's encouragement that he's going to offer to the poor Christians who are suffering for following Jesus, potentially lacking stuff because they follow Jesus, but that is next week in verses 7 and following. But here I think James also has a realistic uh, sense that even for the church, which would have been largely not a bunch of rich people, 
that money is still enticing, and he has a warning for the church. He's going to warn them to not think that this life is all that there is. That the hoarding of wealth will not last, right? It will, the clothes will rot. The gold and silver will rust. Thieves will break in and enter and take it, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. To invest in this life in that way is a major miscalculation. Have you ever, perhaps someone has given you a wonderful gift or like, um, you know, maybe like a really kind of your favorite like snack or food or something like that, and you love it so much, you want it to last as long as possible. I realize some of you are kind of like impulsive and you'll just eat it all in one sitting. I am one of those people that loves to stretch it out as long as I can. And there's nothing like having that really, you know, I don't know, tasty orange that rots in the fridge because you just don't want to, you don't want, you want to have it, you know, for forever. And so often that is the way we approach this life, right? We think that we can enjoy it for forever and we bank on this only. And what's so striking is that James, as we've read already this morning, the appeal of wealth is so strong not just for enjoyment, but also for sense of status, that in chapter 2, he tells the church that if a rich person comes into your church, don't treat them with favoritism and push the poor person off to the side. And there's a number of reasons for this. One is that in the ancient world, pretty much Wealth totally goes like this. It comes down from the top. And if you want some of it, you have got to be nice to the people above you. That is exactly how people got goods and services, was by treating the really wealthy people. And then the wealthy people were expected, actually, to then throw a little bit of money, actually, partially to show off how wealthy they were. It's... it's how the Greco-Roman world functioned. But here's the other reason why it's an important warning. It is an obstacle to discipleship consistently in the teaching of Jesus. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, right, the guy goes out to sow. Some falls on the road, some falls on rocky soil, some falls among thorns, right? And the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, can you tell us what on earth that is about? And one of the things that he says is that the seed that falls among thorns are like those who the cares and the deceit of wealth chokes. So people hear the word, but then they experience the pinch of life or the deceit of wealth and the teachings of Christ are gone, doesn't last. Or how about Matthew 19? 
rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, sell everything you own and follow me. And the guy goes away sad. And the disciples stand there gaping and are like, who can be saved? And Jesus at that moment says, it is very hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the thing. I think one of the reasons why James is warning the church is because you don't have to have lots of money to want it and love it and to be addicted to it and, be and, and bent on attaining it. Just imagine, what do you daydream about? Do you, do you, you know, you see an advertisement on television or maybe you, you know, see some sort of company ad like a get rich quick kind of scheme, right? And you're just like, you find yourself, maybe you're not actually going to even, you know, pursue it, but you're just like, I can picture it now. Yeah. 25,000 a month. Oh, yeah. I could, I could, I could see. I, I think I'd go to Hawaii. No. Why would I go to Hawaii? New Zealand. And you just start imagining what your life would be like, right? You daydream about what it would be like to have tons of money. So the love of money has almost nothing to do with how much you actually have. And I think that is one of the reasons why James is being so clear and so stark for the church. But here's the other thing. So often, the way things are set up is antithetical in completely running the opposite direction to the way the kingdom of heaven runs. That's the other thing. And here's the thing. When you're in a place, when you're surrounded with everyone doing one thing a certain way, it's very easy to start thinking that way, even if that's not what you're kind of inclined towards. The way people live and talk and what they assume can be very influential in our own lives. This is why one of the reasons why parenting, it's often more what the parents do than what the rules that they have are, right? Because kids pick up what is modeled for them. And in the kingdom of heaven, wealth is not for hoarding. And wealth is not for yourself. In fact, if there is any value in the kingdom of heaven that is like, going to compete for number one. It is suffering. And wealth can really help insulate you from suffering. Now, we're all going to die. Our bodies will wear out. You're not going to escape hardship. But if you have lots of money, you can definitely put it off for a lot longer than some people. And here's the thing about suffering. And if you read James... It is 
remarkably clear is that suffering actually sanctifies the Christian. So imagine that if you are a wealthy person, a wealthy Christian, or you know, not maybe as wealthy as the super rich that James has in mind, you have the temptation and the opportunity to actually make the choice about whether or not you may suffer. Will you turn to wealth in those hardships, in those tough moments, or will you lean on the Lord? And again, the kingdom values are totally opposite, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, to the, he says to the Corinthian church, which would have been a church that actually would have had a mix of poor and rich people, you know the grace of Christ. He tells them, you know the grace of Christ. And then what does he say? What is the grace of Christ? That though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Imagine if Jesus were operating based on self-indulgence and hoarding. There definitely would be no incarnation. There would be no salvation. So when we think about wealth as the people of God, we need to be completely reoriented from the way the world thinks about this. And here's the other thing. I think that there are ethical considerations that Christians need to calculate, particularly in this part of the world in which we live. Because as long as you have an Elon Musk, a Bill Gates, you can probably feel like you're dirt poor, right? Just like, because as long as there's Hitler, you can feel like a righteous person. As long as you keep, you kind of oriented a certain direction. But the truth of the matter is that pretty much everyone in this room benefits from companies and people's that in fact do this sort of thing. That in fact do take money from people to whom wages are owed. It's not the same thing. So don't hear me say that because you might benefit from what other people do wrongly, that it's identical. But I do think that there are some things here that Christians need to think very hard about just by way of a few quick examples. Nike and Adidas have made large amounts of money on uh, sweatshops, right? Particularly, uh, recently it's been uncovered that some of the folks that they were oppressing or the Uyghur people in China who have been recently are being killed, massacred. In 2020, it was uh, discovered that Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Tesla were taking advantage of child labor in Congo uh, because they are mining cobalt, which is absolutely necessary for lithium batteries. 
So we have some things I think that we have to wrestle with. But here's the final thing. The other reason why James is telling the Christians to not latch on to this type of thinking is because that a day is coming where it might feel like everyone is getting away with doing the wrong thing and, and, and succeeding because of it. But James is like, that is not true. And in fact, the language he uses in this passage makes that abundantly clear. He tells the rich that their riches, in fact, testify against them. So if the rich have condemned the righteous man in court, in fact, when they show up to the real court date, the date where they sit before God, all of that is going to be counted as evidence against them. Verse 3, he uses the language of in the last days you've hoarded up wealth. That language of in the last days, he totally cherry-picked it from the prophets. In the last days when God shows up to judge the world and every single human evil. Let me give you a few examples from Isaiah James leans heavily on Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. And the first word is wail, which is the same word we have here in James. Weep and wail, you rich. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all the hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt they will be dismayed. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners from it. Jumping down to verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. But then another thing that tells James is thinking about that final day. He tells us that the cries of the needy, of these people that have worked but not received wages, have gone up into the ears of the Lord of hosts. That phrase, Lord of hosts, is actually not very common. James uses it only here once. And if you jump to the Old Testament, it shows up 61 times. And 53 of those uses are from the prophet Isaiah. The Lord of hosts, this of hosts, is a reference to armies. So this is someone who is powerful and well-backed, right? In the ancient world, you have your little city, right? And the, uh, if someone is big and scary, they just march up with their huge army and they surround your little town, okay? And you are totally cut off and they either starve you out or they're big enough, they just come crushing in and you're toast. The Lord of hosts. In Isaiah, when the Lord of hosts shows up, 
he's not judging his people in particular. There's this section of Isaiah from about chapters 13 through 25 where the Lord of hosts essentially makes war on every single massive major imperial kingdom. You have to have a lot of hosts to take on everybody. Last I checked. So listen to Isaiah 5. And he has, in Isaiah 5, actually turned his attention to his own people who've not been listening. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In fact, James has got to be thinking, I want the church to not make the same mistake that Israel made, right? They just did and copied what the nations did. That's why James is warning the church now. Don't make the same mistake. Verse 8 of Isaiah 5, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. He goes on to describe them as enjoying wine and drunkenness and music. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, death has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in justice. The Holy One shows himself in holy righteousness. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, right? Those who twist the courts to get the end that they want. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people. So James is warning the people in order to reorient their lives according to the kingdom, not according to the way the world would have them order their lives. And in fact, the world will press them to order the church according to their ways rather than God's ways. And I want to close with this. Augustine, in his book on Christian doctrine, tells, gives this analogy of a, a traveler 
who's far from home and wants to go home. And Augustine tells the story in such a way that in order to get home, the traveler, he's going to need to pay for fare, right? He's going to need, maybe he goes by, you know, car or train or whatever. He's got to pay to get there. But what happens if the traveler gets distracted? In fact, he's like, you know what? The scenery is beautiful. And I have so much money, like, I'll just use it right here. And the traveler forgets about where he's headed. He forgets about home. The the thing that originally he really, really wanted is eclipsed by the beauty of other things. And James here, I think, is so harsh and so clear because he doesn't want travelers that are distracted and confused about where they're headed. And so one of the things that is urgently important in the church is that we don't let each other do that. It's very easy to not talk to each other about the things that matter. It's very easy to not think about where we are headed and our ultimate goal. There are many, many distractions. But there is a home. It is real, though so often it doesn't feel quite as real as here and now, right? And there are definitely times where it will not feel like it is worth waiting to get there. May the Lord help us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to draw near to you. And I pray you would draw near to us. I pray that we would feel with clarity the temptations of the world to live for here and now only. But I pray that we would feel even more the call of Christ for the life to come. I pray that whatever goods and nice things that we may have, that those things would never become more precious to us than Christ. And they would never become more precious to us than our brothers and sisters or those who we could be generous with. Free us, O Lord, from any form of self-indulgence, hoarding, the temptation to withhold what is due to someone else or uncompassionate hearts. Lord Jesus, I pray that your coming to us, though you are rich for our sake, you became poor, I pray that you would, you would draw us to such compassion and kindness, such mercy. And I pray that you would stir up in this church, I, would, I pray you would stir up in us Such a love for you, Lord Jesus, that we would care for each other really well. 
and together we would be headed towards home, towards you. We ask this, Lord Jesus, to our Heavenly Father in his name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.